0: Can you be quiet please?
1: Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy Playbook, a podcast all about our tricky relationship with stuff and how to fix it. I'm Ali Moore from Re-London, and I'm joined as ever by Wayne Hubbard, our chief exec. Welcome to the first episode in a really long time. We haven't mm. recorded anything since I think February for various reasons. It's been a busy time, but we have since the last episode rebranded from the London Waste and Recycling Board to Re-London, uh, run a very successful Circular Economy week, and we're back again to talk this time about consumption based emissions and what they are yeah Wayne, do we have a handy little definition
0: okay well i'll try and do it very quickly traditionally through the cops through the uh the kind of international climate change system emissions are attributed by territories um so the emissions that you produce within your territory Mm. are your emissions territorial emissions they're called helpfully Um, consumption emissions is just another way of accounting for the same emissions but um, those emissions are allocated to the end user so wherever they're produced is irrelevant it's who is the end consumer of the stuff or service they get um, attributed with the life cycle carbon emissions associated with that good or service so they're the two different approaches territorial emissions you're only responsible for the emissions you create within your territory and consumption emissions now it should be fairly obvious that there are glaring disparities potentially between the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere in relation to territorial emissions so those who are largely Consumers of goods and services who generally live in the northern hemisphere mm. have, to to a large extent, off, offshored the uh, emissions associated with the things that they that we consume. What like and,
1: clothes and TVs and well, stuff like I mean,
0: that? lots, lots and lots of things. You know, over time, things have been um, produced predominantly in in southern hemisphere countries and for example london um and in fact most northern european uh, cities big cities uh the consumption emissions element uh if if you account for consumptions through a consumption emissions methodology it's it's 60 percent higher than the emissions associated with um the energy uh mm. that you consume within the city so um, that's why it's important and increasingly the climate change commission in their sixth carbon budget have started to recognize that we need to keep an eye on consumption emissions and that that they should be coming down because if everyone you know if everyone reduced their emissions at the same rate um, or at least their territorial emissions were consumed on a 1.5 degrees trajectory then everything would be more or less taken care of. But there are some problems with that. And we'll, we'll we'll hear about those from Joss. But essentially, it's because some products and services are not easily mitigatable. Their emissions are not easily mitigated by a switch to energy efficient me- efficiency measures or by a switch to renewable energy.
1: So fundamentally, consumption emissions aren't a different lot of emissions from the ones that are currently accounted for in the discussions at things like COP26. It's all that like, there's only there's a finite amount of emission of, um, of emissions, but what consumption-based emissions does is just account for them differently and put some responsibility with the consumer rather than the producer.
0: Here's the sum that tells you what your consumption-based emissions are, and if if it's using London an example, it's everything that's produced in London minus everything that's exported from London, plus everything that's imported into London. So the carbon emissions associated with those things.
1: Okay, and the reason why our consumption-based emissions in London are 60% higher than um, those associated with energy is that we produce almost nothing in the city and we export almost nothing, but we import huge amounts of stuff.
0: Yeah, that's right. Over time, London, like many other northern European cities... Has kind of deindustrialized. Yeah. So its industrial sector, which used to be huge, is now much smaller, and that uh, production has been off- offshored.
1: Exactly. So you referred there to Joss. We are lucky enough to have two extremely preeminent interviewees um, on the podcast Joss Bleriot, who is from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and is the executive lead for institutions, governments, and cities there. Um, And Kate Rayworth, who describes herself as a renegade economist. uh, And as I'm sure many of our listeners will know, is the writer of Donut Economics. Um, So let's have a listen to what. Um, both Joss and Kate have got to say about consumption emissions, why they're important and why circular economy in particular is important in helping us to tackle those.
2: I'm Kate Rayworth, I'm a renegade economist because I am determined that economics is going to be rewritten to be fit for the century that we're in. So when the world's governments meet and negotiate about how they're going to tackle climate change, they focus on what's called territorial emissions, the emissions that are emitted within the land mass that's called their country. So the UK's territorial emissions would be greenhouse gas emissions that are emitted from the land that we call the United Kingdom. But when we think about how we live in the United Kingdom and the lifestyle that we've become accustomed to and the way that we spend the money that we earn and what our national income goes on, we are importing clothes and food and electronic goods and consumer goods and construction materials from the entire world. And those goods create a lot of emissions on the other side of the world. Nearly half of the UK's total emissions are actually embedded in that consumption. So to ignore them is to take no responsibility and no account of the scale of greenhouse gases released in the name of the lifestyles that we've come to think is normal. And that's why I think it's incredibly important that we address not only the emissions from the transport in our homes that are emitted on the land that's our nation, but all the carbon and indeed the other resource use that's embedded in the products that we import and buy. Tackling climate change is one of the major ecological crises and demands in front of us. But as well as a climate breakdown, we are inducing an ecological breakdown because of the intensity of material use and extraction that especially countries and cities in the global north are placing on the rest of the world. So creating a circular economy where resources aren't used up, they're used again and again, will help reduce our carbon emissions. It will help reduce the energy of shipping and transporting and manufacturing and recycling and disposing and creating all over again. It tells us to use materials and resources far more carefully, far more collectively, more creatively and more slowly. Let's renovate buildings rather than knock them down. Let's dismantle them and use their timbers again in another place. Let's restore this. So it reduces the total energy. It brings care and consideration instead of throwing energy at the situation. That'll help tackle climate change, but it'll also reduce our material draw on the rest of the world. And so it matters on both of those accounts.
3: So my name is Jos Blario, and I work for the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, where I lead the engagement programme uh, with institutions, governments and cities. Yes, well, so consumption-based emissions, basically, it looks at the, uh, the, all the impacts and the life cycle of products that gets consumed, let's say, in a city, for instance. And it's important because actually it's, uh, you could argue that it's the the hidden part of the uh, GHG emissions and people don't necessarily think about their carbon footprint in those terms. So it really is important to look at uh, the, the bigger picture and what we've done, for instance, last year with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation is look at a global macro figure. And the climate change uh, discussion and the GHG emission discussion has been focused so far, and for the right reasons, on energy consumption, energy efficiency, moving to renewables. But if you uh, look at all the GHG emissions that come out of production of goods and food that we have in the system globally, that's about 45% of all GHG emissions. And that's a massive figure, really that that looks at five key areas globally so we looked at cement plastics steel aluminium and food production because they're quite big and iconic and if we applied circular economy strategies in those five areas that can remove over 9 billion tons of co2 by 2050 which is almost half of the 45 percent of ghg emissions that are linked to products as i said earlier so bear with me here because it it gets a bit confusing, but the 45% of GHG emissions that uh, result from production of goods and food, that half can be tackled through circular economy strategies, which is looking at designing out waste from the the very outset, making sure that products are made in a way that uh, means they're repairable, Uh, remanufacturable, that the components and the materials can be easily, uh, easily recovered in order to be repurposed or reused and things get fed back into productive loops. Because actually the big chunk of the emissions really come from the extraction of virgin materials. So if you displace the needs for those additional virgin materials, of course, you reduce the GHG emissions. So it is that logic. It's about making sure that the things that get put on the market and make made accessible to citizens and consumers, for lack of a better term, are made in such a way that they can have multiple useful lives. And when it comes to uh, food, for instance, the emissions we know from food waste are, are extremely high and extremely important. So how do we design the collection systems in order to close those nutrient loops and make sure that the organic byproducts that are useful can go back to the soil. You can then, of course, implement carbon sequestration in the soils through regenerative uh, agricultural practices. All of these things are, as you said, they're not yet mainstream in the debate, but they are really coming Uh, To the fore and to the center of the stage through the work of uh, institutions such as the International Resource Panel, the UN body that has done a lot of work on looking at the potential of remanufacturing or land use in a a more uh, regenerative way that can really help lower these emissions.
1: Joss there talked about the 45% figure of emissions arising from um, materials, agriculture and food. Um, It's a a huge figure. So how do we go about tackling that 45% then?
0: Well, I think this is where the circular economy comes in because there's no particular um, technological change that we can make per se to help us with that 45% right now so um, the circular economy is you know backed up by behavior changes is, ha- is how we address that so we come mm-hmm. back to those five circular economy business models that we've talked about really throughout this series of podcasts yeah um, and you know I mean there are lots of ways again just to say you know for disclosure there are lots of ways in which you can analyze the circular economy in terms of of, of trying to describe it or define it but you know i always find that one way or another it does come down to these five things which are um which we we've we've kind of come up with this way of describing it as as follows making the most of stuff which is about um using recycled material to make something new or minimizing waste to make the most out of every bit of material Mm -hmm. And then there's what we call recycled out, which is capturing materials at the end of their first life or second life and using them again for a different but valuable purpose. Yeah. Uh, The third business model is making things well. So designing things to last as long as possible to ensure that they can be maintained, reused and repaired.
1: Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah.
0: And then the fourth one is... Uh, renting not buying often or sometimes called servitization which is leasing and renting products in order that the the burden of maintenance repair and recycling falls on the provider rather than the the end user okay so that's really important shift in, in incentivizing companies to take more care of the products that they make because they still own them Yeah, And then the final uh, business model, the fifth business model, is sharing, which is getting the maximum value out of and use out of underutilized products, buildings and vehicles by providing access to sharing platforms such as HiCar, Olio or New.
1: Yeah, the wonderful New who we work with on a regular basis as well.
0: uh, What do they do? So they
1: are um, a clothes sharing app. Uh, and closed swapping app and we regularly with our love not landfill campaign run um swaps with them um which are very enjoyable now just
0: has got some comments hasn't he about this yeah. and the current state of uh, of these business models? so maybe if we hear what he has to say we can then think about that when we come back
3: The hardest bit, of course, is uh, looking at the the whole system and the way it's uh, it's geared at the moment. Uh, the linear economy is very efficient. You get uh, a lot of really streamlined value chains, and and that, of course, puts the individuals such as you and me in in the middle of a system that you know we we can hardly influence sometimes. So there is a question of making sure that uh, the demand for those products and the the mindsets and the way that we are happy to benefit from the use of a product rather than necessarily buying it outright. There are things when it comes to food uh, that are completely linked to uh, diet changes. Uh, And of course, that's not something that the circular economy can have a direct influence on. But what can be done uh, is making sure that the right business models do exist that the right incentives are put uh, to companies so that it can innovate in the right way at the moment you know we talk a lot about uh, functional economy getting uh, access over ownership but the reality is that it's really difficult to find those models they exist on paper and in theory, and they make a lot of sense, but as an individual, if you want to, uh, uh, let's say, lease your washing machine, for instance, it's going to take you a lot of work to find the right contract, if, if it exists at all. So that's that's one of the key things. These models do exist. In theory, they do work, they stack up, they have massive benefits when it comes to reduction of material use, and they have consequences when it comes to durability of products, etc, etc. But at the moment, they're not an economic reality. And so we need to look at ways in which the cost structure and the incentives of the economy is geared towards a more circular model. Because at the moment, the reality is that it's inherited from the very efficient industrial revolution and and that it favors throughput one way buy more and produce more volumes at the end of the day a lot of the uh, burden of the ownership of the assets that we have if that was lifted in an economical and pragmatic way everybody would be happy to do it so i'm not sure it's a question of mindset it's just at the moment those models are clunky few and far between and often don't make a lot of economic sense yet
1: so that was really interesting wasn't it that joss was saying that it's still quite difficult for people to access these these models
0: yeah i mean he's right to an extent i don't i don't entirely agree with him but i mean Certainly, for things like renting, he is right. I mean, I was challenged on this at a recent uh, webinar that I that I gave when I was talking about using. I gave I gave washing machine as an example of renting something, where mm. the incentive of the repair and the maintenance, and even potentially the cost of the wash, the electricity, and the water costs associated with the washing machine, could all be put on the on the producer of the good rather than on the the end user as they are at the moment mm. and somebody pointed out well you know i've just looked online and i can't find an easy way to rent a washing machine because yeah. the, the the linear system deals with rental as a way of um giving access to stuff to people who haven't got good credit rating yeah yeah that's that's yeah. what the rental section has traditionally been for you mm. you rent stuff because you couldn't buy it through hp that that was yeah. you know that's so it's it just starting to develop now. There's some companies out on the market, probably not actually in the UK market, but who are leasing out high-quality washing machines um, to end users. But the the switch to having you pay per wash rather than you know pay for the machine hasn't yet happened. So he's right about that. But there are other uh, circular economy business model offers that have become you know kind of part of our life subscription yeah for better or worse is much more common now than it ever was and yeah. of course we're all used to uh streaming yep, services so exactly. you know music and uh and, and video is it still called video ali
1: well they call it video on demand don't they, they so do don't they yeah even though it isn't format and technically wise <laughs> it's not video is it it's not so, like a strip of black glossy stuff no
0: that's right that the old vhs um, yeah but I mean, you know, I remember when Netflix was um, a service that sent you a DVD in the post.
1: Oh, I did too. I used to love receiving those DVDs. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love what I love even more is being able to access anything that's on there at any time now for free. Well, not for free, but obviously for so, a small monthly fee. Indeed. So some Other, of those other providers other are, available. are
0: available. So some of those business models are, you know, eminently... Uh, successful in our current linear economy because they're better than the the equivalent linear version that that they 've superseded
1: yeah, but, and that's what we need to do isn't it I mean that's so here 's the point really I suppose is that you know a lot of the work that we do is about working with those innovators and those um, service service and product providers to make them more accessible
0: well we are, i mean i I often talk and um I mean, this isn't a gem of wisdom from me. It's a statement to the bloom and obvious, I think, personally. But I often talk about there being three parts to this, governments, uh, civil society, and business. And if Mm -hmm. all of those three parts are are, uh, doing what they should be doing, then we'll move forward to a circular economy. But if there's a... um, an unfair or unequal relationship between those three parts then it's going to hold us back so what can we do as government in the city context is help provide help to develop innovative SMEs who are um, coming up with interesting new business ideas for mm. circular economy products and services and in London you know we Cities might well be where the massive stuff is consumed, but it's also where the talent is. Yeah. You know, it's where people and ideas are generated. It well, it, it's true. <laughs> London, we are particularly blessed in London with an amazing talent pool of uh, innovators and entrepreneurs. And we have gone out to try and help find and help those entrepreneurs develop new ideas with mm. a reasonable degree of success. But governments, our government and other governments really um, at the national level need to think about how that translates into international policy in this era of recovery from COVID. And I think that's really important, too. And citizens need to be incentivized or um, have messages to help them uh, change their behavior away from um you know, behaviours that uh, are going to increase global heating to behaviours that are going to mitigate or yeah. reduce their contribution to global heating.
1: Absolutely. And accessibility is everything in this respect, isn't it? So it's not just about like educating them, but providing the access to those, as you say, creating that ecosystem. And, and um...
0: That's a really good example, actually. So, so messaging without the alternative is shaming. Isn't yeah, it? That's, exactly. And that's not really going to help uh, no. at all, but messaging no. with a, a, a plethora of alternatives, that's going to help. And that's what we're, that's what in real and we like to think. That's what we do. We provide a solution and we provide messaging. Um, so he, here's, you know, horse to water.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so the role of cities is, is much, um, is much talked about in our, in our world. Um, and, Kate had quite a lot to say about cities in general and a bit to say, a bit of interesting insight into her work with Amsterdam in particular. So shall we have a a listen to what she's got to say about that?
0: Yes, let's do.
2: So I think cities are a really interesting scale of change happening. There's a dynamism, there's an innovation, there's a level of ambition and energy that I'm finding At the scale of cities from the mayor and the city council and the residents that is sometimes just not happening at the national level and cities are realizing that yes we can cut our city-based emissions so we can get cars out of the city center we can insulate the homes in our city we can think about how we power our city but then you're seeing that cities are the locus the, the the focal point of a stream of consumer sales and so All those consumption-based emissions, they are largely being sold through big shops in many cities. And cities, the most progressive cities are saying, OK, we're doing our local emissions, but now come on, let's step up and recognize that our city is generating a lot of emissions from around the world. So we need to take responsibility for this. And we are downscaling the donut. The donut is an idea of meeting the needs of all people within the means of the living planet. And some cities are saying, you know what, this is a really useful tool for what we want to do here. So invite any any ambitious city to ask itself this question. How can your city be a home to thriving people in an ecologically thriving place while respecting the well-being of all people and the health of the whole planet? And that means we can think about local aspirations, but set them in the context of global responsibility. So the cities I'm working with are facing that question. It's not easy. You know, cities' global ecological footprints are huge, especially those cities of the global north. Their carbon footprint, but all their their material footprint and impact on land and fertilizer and water use and materials around the world. So when Amsterdam was drawing up its circular economy strategy, they already knew they wanted to do circularity and they were beginning to look at it very much in terms of the technical details of material flow. And then realized that creating a circular economy isn't just about the flow and movement of materials it's going to transform what an enterprise is. It's going to transform how we use objects, how we repair them, how we share them, how we relate to others. So it's a human transformation as much as a material transformation. And they started looking around for a framework that helped hold this. And when they found the donut, they said, okay, this is a framework that we can see our circular strategy, it's social and ecological, but also this holds a space for tackling climate change. So they use it as an overarching concept and have actually committed to the purpose of having a thriving, regenerative, inclusive city for all residents while respecting the planetary boundaries. That's the goal of their circularity policy. So it sits above the particularities of the policy, which is about saying we're going to be a 100 percent circular economy by 2050. Big goal. Too far away. So let's have something closer. We're going to be a 50 percent circular economy in the city by 2030. That's less than a decade still too far away. Let's commit to saying in 2022, next year, 10% of all the materials in government-procured contract in this city must be circular materials. I find that a really compelling combination. Long-term ambition, decadal conviction, next year opportunity to be the forerunner. And so they've written circularity into their food system, into their construction sector, And into textiles, actually, they they've got an ambition not to be the Silicon Valley, but to be the Circular Valley. There's a lot of textile um, use and manufacturing going around around in the region, and they want to see how can we make this part of a circular centre of uh, and and an innovative way that our city can evolve.
1: That was obviously Kate's work in in Amsterdam and on the donut is pretty totemic, and lots of people in. Our sector um, refer to Amsterdam and that work, and and uh, Kate's work more generally. But um, we've not taken up the donut, have we? In London, Wayne, are we doing? What are we doing specifically in London around this? Uh,
0: well, no, we're not. I mean, I, I, people are working. I think with Kate actually locally. I think that's probably you know in a city the size of London. I think that's the appropriate level. Actually, um, I mean at the at the London wide level, there's loads of work now going on with the mayor of London and London's boroughs to look at um, uh, consumption emissions, how we can mitigate them, what strategies we need to implement. Uh, our contribution to that at Re London is to um, come up with a series of materials flows to understand how materials and carbon flows through our city at what point we can intervene to have the most, Uh, Effect for the limited resources that we have, we've been helped by the COVID recovery missions and the Green New Deal mission in particular. And the Mayor of London has given us uh, some money to distribute to businesses to help um, with uh, one with the surviving the 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 COVID downturn, but also um, to uh, help. Generate new pilot ideas for mm. uh, circular economy businesses. So we we've been giving out some grant funding along those lines, and then uh, we're also working with boroughs and uh, below the borough level, below the the kind of municipal level, with community groups at the high street level um, through this program called Future Neighbourhoods, and we want to develop ultra low waste neighbourhoods, essentially, yeah, beamed around. Um, the circular economy. So we're working closely with a number of boroughs to see what that would look like. But you could imagine, can't you, a, a high street dotted with circular economy businesses around you know, sharing libraries of things. Um, repair in, shops. Repair shops, excitingly. maker spaces. Yeah, all yeah. that kind of stuff.
1: Secondhand places, yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, but also with the businesses and citizens equipped with tools and assets to help them champion circular economy behavior change so mm. i, I mean i growing? find that really could we
1: have food growing in there do you think
0: i think we probably could i don't see why not you know A certainly, micro but, ad absolutely, absolutely. Uh, i mean yeah all of that is is absolutely possible and if you Um, if you adapt that behavior at a high street level and dot that all around London, you know, the aggregate of that would be significant, I think. Certainly in terms of one, the amount of carbon it saves and two, the message that gives out and the access to different circular economy businesses to uh, London citizens. And then if you duplicated that around the globe, if other cities took that on and and they are doing, you know, they're all doing Mm. their bit, then, you know that's how we're going to. That's one of the ways in which we're going to help save the planet. And what we, yeah. what we say, isn't it, is saving the the yeah. world one behavior at a time. So. Exactly,
1: exactly. I really like the fact that um, for all the horror of the last year and a half, and all of the damaging impacts, that I feel optimistic about the fact that it started to focus people much more on the local, on the community level, that people are starting to see the value in bringing things closer to home, in shortening supply chains, in being much more engaged with materials and production and and their stuff than they were potentially before. It all felt very kind of alienated and you know long supply chains leading all the way around the world. And it feels like we're bringing things closer to home.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. As a result right. of all of this. Uh, you know, without being kind of too rose tinted about it though there, there are there are definite things about the last the experience of the last you know 18 months or so that that we should that we should aim to to carry forward things like i don't know um the the, the whatsapp group <laughs> reuse kind of Mm. i've i've got a spare bit of food messages or i don't need these books i'm putting them out the front uh please help yourself kind of things that's been happening just sporadically and unilaterally all over the the country
1: has anyone got a drill has anyone got a
0: drill yeah i mean we've had that with hammers and ladders and yeah you know and uh, again that's a great example of why uh sharing libraries of things type organisations on every street corner would just be great you know mm. we don't we don't all need these things we need one of these things per yeah. i don't know how many households 100 200 households you know
1: so that i think part of what we're talking about there is what people call a just transition as well as talking about green jobs better jobs uh, closer communities um better equities um but um, Joss touches on that uh, in this next section. So we we moved on to ask both Kate and Joss about um, what their hopes were, particularly this year, given that COP twenty six is taking place in November in Glasgow, uh, and that UK is obviously the the host country. Um, and Joss touches on that a little bit um, when he talks about it. So should we have a listen to what um, the two of them have got to say about COP and what they what they hope? for it
3: well the first thing is that uh there was a call for a system reset before the pandemic hit uh we had the european green deal we had a lot of a lot of traction we had a lot of uh interest from the financial community when it comes to uh, low climate, low carbon sorry, strategies, circular economy, uh, and all of that wasn't derailed. If anything, it was made even more relevant. And that's probably the biggest hope because circular economy and those strategies can help in the very short term to address some of the, the key economic issues that we have at the moment in the downturn phase, but it can also pave the way to a more resilient system and really set us up to a, a redefined way of looking at growth, a better growth, a, a prosperity which is more resilient and that is conducive to the regeneration of ecosystem, society, wellbeing. In the lead up to it, what we're trying to do really is to make a very clear link, join the dots between the climate conversation and the circular economy strategies because as we've discussed previously, the circular economy has a lot to contribute to the climate discussion, and to make sure that we achieve a regenerative low carbon society and an economy that works in the right direction. So all the work that we're doing starting now, and now we've started with our report I mentioned earlier, really is preparing the ground for COP, making sure we have the right uh, the right arguments, the, the right data points, because it needs to be very, very precise. We also work with our private sector partners in order to illustrate their stories and how they make the link between circular economy and their climate ambitions in the work that they do every day so that we have tangible examples to bring to the table by the time COP happens in whatever format. And so that, that really is the bulk of the work that we're doing right now is really working on those narrative points, finding the right examples, painting the compelling story, because it is about completing the picture. It is about showing that without looking at those consumption-based emissions and the production of goods, we will not get to where we need to. So that that's the first step. When it comes to COP itself, well, let's, uh, let's work it out and, and see what happens really. But we are, of course, talking to the uh, UN... Uh, Uh, UNFCCC and the Marrakech Partnership, which is the vehicle that brings all the non-parties to the table. So we were involved with the Nigel Topping, the high-level champion for climate, having all these conversations to make sure that the circular economy gets a lot of airtime at COP, that we bring the right examples, and that from a policymaker perspective, there is traction uh, at country level to really make the link between the circular economy strategies and the climate ambitions, because it's not an either-or. It's not we have to do GHG reduction, and on top of that, we have to do circular economy. No, no, circular economy is a great vehicle. It contributes to achieving those climate ambitions. And as soon as uh, countries and governments realize that they do make the link, and it's an actually easier journey, and also it's one that encompasses innovation competitiveness and industrial renewal so it's kind trying to really make that uh, win-win logic uh, come to the fore
2: it's always been an important year every year has been a year that governments could have chosen to make it the year that they act and actually start dealing with this crisis on the scale that it demands i mean look at what's happened in the past year in the face of covid governments around the world within days Closed the nation's borders, grounded the aeroplanes, shut the schools, paid the wages of the nation's workers, housed the homeless, found the money to create a vaccine and get the job until it's done. And those very same governments for decades in the face, not of a human health emergency, but a planetary health emergency. For decades, they have delayed in the negotiations, haggled at these annual cops, denied the science and continued to fund fossil fuel companies for trillions of dollars a year. It is time and it has long been time to take this planetary emergency as seriously and on the scale that it already demanded. So, yes, this is an important year. Let's at last make this the year that we actually show up and do it.
1: So that was a pretty rousing um, call to arms there from Kate and, and probably a good point on which to to close with those two fantastic interviews. Um, big thanks again to, to Joss Bleriot from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and to Kate Raworth. But... Um, yeah, I mean, it feels like we've got a huge job to do. It's never been more urgent, and it feels like the circular economy's definitely got a role to play, not just in tackling some of those climate issues, but in tackling a whole range of things, doesn't it?
0: What well, Joss's definition of a linear economy was an economy inherited from the Industrial Revolution that favours throughput in its one way mm. and produces more volume. You know, that is... Um, you know if you think about the industrial revolution and you 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 kind of think about I think about Dickens and I think about um factories with children you know operating yeah. I think about basically everything that we associate is 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 unjust and unequal and unfair and unsafe that's you know that was the that rapid disruptive change of the industrial revolution now the change from where we are now which is essentially a system inherited from the industrial revolution to a circular economy has to be uh it will be disruptive but it must be just if we're going to bring people along you know it it must be a just transition Mm. and uh i also think the circular economy offers us the opportunity to make it so because by its very nature it is redistributive it is about um, providing access to good quality, well-designed stuff that maybe lives a second, a third, or a fourth life. Mm. You know, redistributing excess computers or furniture or food or whatever it is, you know. So there is a redistributive element, there's a repair element, there's a a, a kind of thrifty element to it, as well as uh, a way to enable us to... Enjoy a high standard of living, and the word that Kate always uses, "thrive." Yeah, and I think that's a really important word. We want to have thriving economies, not economies that are not, uh, you know, sustainable. Mm. Uh, they must be robust. They must be fit for purpose. They must be what Kate wants, which is a twenty-first century economy, and. And again, one of the themes I've said in the last year and a a half when I've been doing these webinars is the situation that we find ourselves in is not the norm. It's not normal. It's not usual. It's not normal to not have clothes that you don't pass on of value to, you know, your children. That's not normal because you normally would do. It's not it's not normal to waste food in the way that we do. It's not normal to eat so much meat actually in the way that we do. All of these things are not normal. They're kind of things that have been foisted on us after the, I don't know, the second world war, you know, Mm. it's, it's happened in a, in a generation or two. So, um, you know I am very optimistic that there will be a just transition there will be it'll, it will either do it because we choose to or because it's forced upon us and I hope that we do it for the right reasons that we choose to and certainly in London um, we're working with people like Kate and with people like Joss and the Ellen MacArthur Foundation the Mayor of London and London's boroughs to try and make that happen
1: yeah Here, here. So, yeah, great. That was um, a good romp through consumption-based emissions, circular economy, cities and COP, um, and why we need a circular economy to make the world a better place. Um, Thanks, Wayne. That was a good one. Um, A couple of great interviews as well. um, And we look forward to catching up with you next time.